Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and on episode 6 of Cheftimony, I'm looking at a trend, what might be a wave and perhaps even an epidemic in the culinary industry, chefs and cooks who are leaving the business. For those of us who love restaurants and food, it's a bit scary, which I think makes it very much worth talking about. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Cheftimony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Have a look the next time you're walking into a restaurant and see if you notice something in the window. In very recent days and in three different cities in British Columbia, I've seen the same thing over and over again. A sign. A sign that says, Cooks Wanted. I've seen that sign in Gibsons on the Sunshine Coast. I've seen it in Tofino on the western coast of Vancouver Island. And I've seen a whole lot of that sign in Vancouver. Restaurants need more cooks. In some cases, restaurants are having to close for hours or days that they'd rather be open, but they can't be open because there aren't enough people to cook the food. Why is that? Cooking must be more popular now than it's ever been. The attention of the media, traditional and social, is intense and it's growing. And there's no shortage of people posting endless photographs of their restaurant experiences. So why is it that not enough people want to cook professionally, at least not for the long term? I've got a few theories which can be distilled to this. As a career, cooking asks too much and it pays too little. Please understand I'm not saying that the career doesn't give enough. Cooking professionally is immensely rewarding. It's challenging, creative, social, and fun. It's great. But for more and more people and for more and more restaurants, the economics don't make sense. And that leads to people making tough decisions about what's best for their lives. The truth is that restaurants, even if they're lucky enough to be successful, operate on very thin margins. David Chang, a very successful chef based in New York and someone I've mentioned on the show before, wrote an article in GQ on the point. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but to give you an idea, here are the opening sentences of the article. Razor thin does not begin to describe just how slender the margins are in the restaurant business. And that's if you're one of the fortunate few that doesn't go under in the first year. If you're lucky, small single digits, like the smallest single digits. It's legitimately one of the dumbest businesses you could possibly get into. So, if Chef Chang is right, and I think he is, how can restaurants possibly pay their cooks well? And if you're living in a city like, say, New York or Vancouver, where the cost of living is through the roof, how long can you survive as a cook, following the passion that led you into a restaurant kitchen in the first place? My first guest today is Will Beer, a friend from my days at Burdock & Co. Will was our sous chef for much of my time at the restaurant, and it was a privilege to work with him. Will is both a talented cook and a thoughtful chef, capable of bringing mathematical rigor to food costing and preparation. Will and I spoke about the differences between the reality of cooking professionally and the rosy notions many people have of what the job is going to be like. Many people have a passion for food, but the drive to prepare it well every single time, no matter how intense the environment, that's something different. You only really find out your standards when you're really busy. Anybody can have great standards when you're slow, but when you're sitting there on a Friday night at 8 o'clock and you just got absolutely crushed, you know, your standard has to be above everything else. And Will maintained his very high standards over a culinary career spanning 17 years, But recently, he left the business. We'll discuss why. After my interview with Will, I meet up with another friend and Burdock alumnus, Greg Sugiyama, who sadly has also left the industry. 
My talk with Greg at Vancouver's Bows and Arrows Coffee Shop is coming up soon, but first to a booth at Save on Meats on Vancouver's Hastings Street for my talk with Will Beer. We started our interview by discussing the differences between expectation and reality for many people entering the culinary field. The, the cooking schools treating these kids as customers and trying to give them a pleasant experience is all nice and good um, when you're young, but I don't think it's getting them ready for a, a lifelong career as a, as a cook or chef. I mean, when, when they get out into the real world and all of a sudden you have a, a chef, whether she or he, you know, yelling at you to hurry up, you know, and all of a sudden they're like, well, I don't like the way you talk to me. You know, this isn't what, what cooking school was like. It's kind of a joke in the sense of when they get out there, they've been sugarcoated for so long that uh, they end up not enjoying their time because they were not ready for this mass amount of work expected in a very short amount of time and to have precision all at the same time. And then they have cooks and chefs being not necessarily mean, but definitely aggressive to get the work done. Right, and I wonder, that's got to be a contributing factor to what we're seeing, and one of the big things I want to talk to you about today, that uh, people leaving the industry. So people will come out, uh, graduate, come give this a try and say, and in many ways, much like law, wow, this is not like what I thought it yeah. would be like, and, and that's, I think, leading to a crisis where there aren't enough cooks to go around. It's really hard to think about all the reasons why people aren't cooking there's I would say that there's probably a few solid reasons um, you know they get out into the industry after they spent what is 25 grand at one of these schools nowadays you know you go from you know school that's Monday to Friday probably daytime you get in on your first service and it's you know you're thinking that you just graduated from whatever cooking school and uh, it's hard, like it's hot, it's fast, and then you look at your schedule and you're probably working five to six days a week, um, five on the lower end and seven on the higher end, and you know, your eight hour day is not, not an eight hour day, it's, it's a 12 hour day, and if you wanna get good, then you have to put your time in. And like any of us cooks and chefs out there, like. I would only hope that they would agree that you have to put the time in. You have to be proactive in your own career, and that takes a lot of hours away from seeing friends and family. It can be an incredibly lonely career, and I don't think a lot of people actually talk about that very much. When you tell them that it's going to be, you know, nights, weekends, holidays, long weekends, Christmas, anytime that you want to go to a concert, that's a that's a no. Well, and I want to come to your the transition that you're going through now. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about your experiences in Vancouver. Maybe just pick out one or two spots um, that stand out in in thinking back on your cooking career. I know uh, certainly know you were at Burdock as a sous chef for a good long period of time. And uh, Pastis, uh, give the listeners a, a sense of a couple of the places that you worked at. The two places that changed the way I view food and view the industry in a positive in in positive ways and in some negative ways 
would be probably Burdock and the Wedgwood Hotel. Both of those places were massive parts of my career. Working with Andrea Burdock was amazing. She has an amazing touch and feel for food that I would only hope that I could even like remotely get close to half of what she has in, in ability and just knowledge of everything that's going on. Working in Burdock as a sous chef, I was incredibly lucky to get a position where I got to learn all of that, but as well be a sous chef to Andrea. She, I think we worked really well together and I really enjoyed our time. Uh, the Wedgwood was right when I finished my apprenticeship at the golf course and I came, it was really my first kind of hardcore French, like English chef that was big and scary but he was amazing. Like the way he thought about food and the way he plated, he was the biggest Englishman you would ever see. And he had hands the size of my head, but he was so precise with his food. And he was, he was in, an incredible teacher. He was hard on you when he had to be, but uh, like he taught me so much. And I, like I started there when I was 22 and probably one of the biggest turning points of my career for sure. Well, I want to talk a bit, Will, now about restaurant economics and your role as sous chef at Burdock. The role of sous chef, it seems to me, is one one of the key responsibilities that I often see associated with the, with the position are the ordering, so dealing with the suppliers, and the food costing as well. So let's talk about those two topics for a bit. And can you give the listeners a sense of what... Uh, a restaurant does what a sous chef does in terms of assessing the costs in a dish. What are the what are the general rules? How do you what's what's a general rule of thumb when you're trying to decide whether a dish is going to be profitable, whether it's you can you know put it on the menu at a reasonable reasonable price point. What goes into your thinking? Working in places like Burdock, it definitely comes down to seasons. You know, what's in season, what can we use, what goes well together. When we kind of get a dish or a thought process going, um, I generally like to think of two ingredients that can kind of go together. Some people like to just have like their main ingredient and play around with that. I like to grab two that are both in season and, and work off that. So, I mean, generally we'll take... If it's, a, if it's a dish with protein on it, we'll take the cost of the protein and that's kind of where it's gonna kind of set your stage for your, your costing, um, depending on whether the piece of fish or meat costs four or five dollars, then you, ha- you, you already know that you're talking probably between 18 and 22 dollars, depending on your garnish and your sauces and, and everything. And a lot of people don't realize what you know, a food cost on that dish, it might sound like we're not spending a lot of money, but they forget that, you know, we also have to pay for the electricity, the dishwasher, the chemicals to clean all the dishes so you have a nice, enjoyable evening, um, the servers to bring you your wine and have the knowledge that they have um, about wine and to be able to pair it with the food that we've created. And they also, I mean, we spend know 15 years practicing and perfecting what we do and you're paying for all of that that's kind of how it works into a price and a lot of people I think don't realize that when they look at a dish it's it's oh well this is too expensive for that it's like well 
I've often thought that people, when they think about food costs, they make the mistake of thinking of what they could prepare this for at home. Even assuming they had the ability to, to prepare a meal to the same standard, and I always ask them, well, are you factoring in the cost of your electricity? Are you factoring the cost of your mortgage or your rent payment? Because mm -hmm. you got to have physical premises to make the food in. Maybe we can talk about a specific dish. I remember one night at Burdock or one afternoon you were breaking down fish and I asked you about figuring out the price per portion. So walk the listeners through that. So if you get a, you get a whole fish in, it weighs whatever it weighs. You butcher it and you're serving, you say you want to serve five ounce portions. What's what's the process and the math that goes into portion cost? It's pretty straightforward, but you basically take what the supplier sends you, whether it be 25 or 30 pound fish. Um, is it skin on, skin off? Is it whole fish? We generally at Burdock dealt with whole fish um, all the time. Um, so, you know, a halibut, you got to take into account all the waste that you cut off. So um, you're trying to give your... Uh, customer the best piece that you could possibly get out of that one fish so you generally you have to take all the skin off take the fins off take the bones out you know all of that we're still paying for you know we're a lot of people forget that yes we're caught this is costed for this but you know you don't take into the account the 25% depending on who's cutting the fish is waste you know, um, and then you kind of break it down into, okay, so this is how much waste, I get that percentage, I add that percentage to my total cost of what I spent on the fish, and then I break it down into portions. So I know how much the fish cost me, and then I break it down into the five ounce portions. And then, you know, you get your general cost of what one piece of fish can cost. After talking with Will about how to calculate portion cost, we moved into challenges restaurants have with managing overall supply and inventory. How do you predict how much of any given dish you're going to need? What can you do with leftovers, and how can restaurants present the best possible food yet still minimize waste? I asked Will about a hypothetical example of a halibut dish. So what happens when you have halibut on the menu and for whatever reason, on a Thursday night you might sell a lot of halibut and on a Friday you sell none? Um, how do you meet the challenges of changing demand when you're dealing with an extremely perishable commodity? It's an educated guessing game. At the end of the day, like you try and make sure that you have enough of everything to make sure that every customer that walks through that door has a choice of every single menu item. Um, unfortunately, as we all know, sometimes you get a run on one dish and all of a sudden, you know, eight o'clock you've run out because you don't normally sell 20 portions of that in a first serving or first service, but all of a sudden you did. Um, and every table has one. Um, and then Friday comes along and you're like, okay, I just sold a crazy amount of this, so you know, I'm going to bring in a little extra because I can't, I can't get fish after Saturday until Monday. So, And then you don't sell any on Friday. I don't want to speak for every sous chef out there, but I used to have a little bit of a, a heart attack when you sit at the end of Friday night where it's supposed to be your primetime day to sell you know, your good, good priced items and your... your higher end food and you're sitting there on 25 portions of halibut going oh my god what am I going to do um, you know you you generally have to just you know you make sure that 
from start to finish, from the time that the fish comes into the restaurant to the time that you sell, you handle it respectively towards the fish and you handle it in a way that you're going to get the best shelf life out of it. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes you do have to throw things out. Um, generally, we would never let it get to a stage where we would throw it out. We would probably get creative with it, whether we cure it or we we make up a different dish. Or at the end of the day, like I'd rather give it to staff than a, than than throw it in the garbage. So we make it into a family meal for everybody. So. Yeah, have a really high-end family meal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of scary when you think like that, especially when the chef comes walking through the door and you're like, oh no, uh, why is there three portions of fish going to people? And you're like, well, it's better than going in a bin, so. Absolutely. And one last question on economics. Other uh, tweaks that you can make as a chef, as a sous chef, to... Um, supplies and I'm thinking of one specific example that I know you instituted at Burdock which was we would use um, kosher salt for seasoning during service which is beautiful for that application but also quite expensive and not always necessary so you brought in um, what we were calling job salt right yeah which is standard salt for uh, more behind-the-scenes applications of curing and pasta water pasta water yes exactly so how important are changes like that in a restaurant? Because those strike me as things that people really, really outside the industry would never think about, uh, keeping an eye on the cost of salt. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was pretty anal about uh, a lot of things at Burdock. Probably anybody that worked there with me will probably giggle at that uh, <laughs> because I was pretty stringent on everything that we were doing. Um, but those are... Those are things that I actually haven't seen a lot in the industry, to be honest. Um, I picked that up from a chef that I had worked with before, and the rule was if it was ever going to impact the flavor of the dish, we wouldn't do it. But if we're cooking pasta and a little bit of regular salt goes in the water rather than a bucket full of more, like three times as expensive kosher salt, then we're probably going to do that because you know we have to figure out ways of keeping our costs low so the customers do come in but we also want to serve the best possible food that we can um, it's a teeter-totter of trying to focus on doing the best food that we possibly can out of the kitchen that we we are doing it out of but at the same time trying to make it so we don't go out of business because we wanted to use kosher salt and fleur de sel and all the beautiful things when you didn't have to. The economic realities aren't just a challenge for restaurant owners, they're a challenge for restaurant employees too. I asked Will to talk about wages cooks can expect when starting out and our discussion quickly focused on the challenges cooks face in an industry that doesn't often pay very well because the economic realities of the industry mean it can't pay very well. If you can comment just in general terms, what what can cooks expect to earn in the industry coming out of culinary school? Well, minimum wage to start. I think a lot of cooks come out of it thinking that they're going to start making money right away. And any any cook that's coming out of culinary school should look at it as the next 10 years is going to be your learning time. You, you, you learn the basics in school and that's great but 
it's not going to help you on a Friday night in the middle of service. Those 10 years are probably the most important 10 years of your career. They're going to show you what you're made of. You're going to find out what your standards are. Um, a lot of cooks always talk about, oh, having great standards. You only really find out your standards when you're really busy. Anybody can have great standards when you're slow. Anybody can be really picky when you, you have four guests in the restaurant and everything is perfect. But when you're sitting there on a Friday night at 8 o'clock and you just got absolutely crushed, you know, your standard has to be above everything else. And I think that's, that's one thing that's more important than being able to turn a potato or be able to, you know, dice a shallot absolutely perfectly and have zero waste. Standards have to be there. And that's something you learn. And to be expecting a good paycheck before you can actually have good standards and have good thought process about food, you know, I think I think they're kidding themselves. What, what does tipping look like? Because my very general sense from time I've spent in the industry, both as a server back in the day and as a cook, uh, is you make more money in the front of the house. <laughs> from, from tips. And I know this is really a hot topic in the industry with some restaurants trying to move to a gratuity included model. So what does tipping look like, again in general terms, for uh, kitchen employees? Generally, um, I've kind of always left that up to the front of house, but from my understanding, and if someone's out there to correct me if I'm wrong, there's a percentage of food sales that the servers don't actually have to give up, but they do um, because of their generosity. Um, I have a mass amount of respect for the front of house. They do things that I wouldn't be able to do because I don't particularly like a lot of people. So, um, well suited to Chef I, I, I do really enjoy cooking for people, and I, I love when people have that, you know, I'll try anything. But tipping is a very interesting topic because all over the world they have different ways of tipping or different ideas of how to pay their employees well enough. People here need to get to understand that, you know, if they work it into the price, you don't have to tip on top of that. Everybody looks at the prices and go, oh, well, that's really expensive. Yeah, but you're not tipping after. Like, no one takes that into account. Oh, well, $25 for that dish is really expensive. Yeah, but if it was $20 and you tip $5 on top of that, it would be the same thing. I think it's it's the the thought process of the the general public not understanding or not caring. I think a lot of the general public forget that the people working in our industry that are lifers, that do it for the rest of their lives, we put a roof over our head and our, we fill our bellies with the money that you bring into the restaurant. If you look at any other trade, you know, you, you're not going to argue with the mechanic if your car is broken. You're not going to argue with the plumber if your floor is flooding. And I know that those are obviously different situations. But you have to understand that, you know, people are having their livelihood doing this and putting every effort into it. A couple of years ago, Will had shared that article I mentioned earlier, written by David Chang. That article makes the point that restaurants are, in fact, too cheap. 
I've noticed that people don't seem to mind paying significant margins on coffee and alcohol, but on food it's a whole different story. For some reason, it's very difficult for restaurants to make much money at all on food sales. I asked Will for his thoughts on that. I personally think like going out to a really nice, beautiful restaurant should be expensive. It should be. I mean, you're eating at home should be cheap. If if you can't afford to go out to a really nice restaurant, don't go to a moderately priced restaurant or eat at home. I don't think that restaurants are just for special occasions, but I also think that it should not be cheap. It shouldn't be cheap because it's based on the backs of the chefs and cooks and servers out there not making a living wage to give the general public a cheaper meal. You know, and a lot of people don't think of that. They they just they're like, "Oh, well, that's too expensive." You know, well, you have no idea the amount of work and free time that went into this dish just to get it to your plate and you think that $17 for a three and a half ounce piece of halibut with, you know, gooey duck and a, a beautifully prepared sauce and a puree and locally foraged mushrooms, you know, where, where is your thinking of, there's so many people involved in that dish to make money off of that, to be able to afford to live, that, you know, $17 is, really cheap. I completely agree with David Chang. Like he's he's one of the great chefs of our time and you know, he's hit the nail on the head. Thinking back to my own childhood, which is a few years uh, further ago than yours, um, but it really was a rare occasion that we would go out for any meal. It was a, you know, it was a really big deal to go <clears throat> for fast food. It was an enormous deal to go out to a restaurant for dinner, for, for an evening meal. Yeah. And I wonder if we're all just spoiled with the almost 24-7 availability of, in Vancouver, any kind of cuisine you want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're very, very fortunate to have the restaurants that we have here. I think we're spoiled in the sense of we have all these amazing restaurants but we're also not understanding why they keep going out of business and we're like oh I really love that place well but then you always complain about the prices you owe you eight dollars for a glass of wine that's not expensive at all that's that's cheap you know the the restaurants got to make money to be able to buy the wine, store the wine, pay the server, pay the wine sommelier, have the lights on, have the gas on, pay the rent. You know, we, we haven't even gotten to cooking yet and we've had to make so much money off that glass of wine just to be able to turn the lights on and open the door. Well, let's talk now about, um, this is really what I wanted to touch on in the episode, which is what I see as a sad thing Although it's led to, in your case, doing something else that you love, which is awesome. But people leaving the industry. So tell the listeners about the transition you've made and are making from uh, leaving the kitchen and, and heading into the garage. And what, what brought that on? I had a wonderful career. 17 years in the kitchen. I'll never regret it. I met some amazing people. I worked with some amazing people. I got to cook in some amazing places. And I got to learn a skill that, you know, maybe not a lot of people out there 
always get to to learn as in depth as I did. I decided last year to make a change for uh, life balance and more mental stability. And last year I decided that I would go back to school for auto service mechanic, which was an eight month course. It was nerve wracking because I was one of the oldest in the class. Um, and my nickname, I'm pretty sure, was Old Man. But uh, honestly, like, I knew I had to choose something that I'd be working with my hands and my brain. I like solving mysteries and I like dealing with problem solving. Um, so I knew that working with vehicles was going to be a good, a good fit. And I also really enjoy um, cars and I also enjoy the mechanics of it. So. That was, that was a big contributing factor, but you know, for leaving the kitchen, it was more to have a life outside of the kitchen, to go and enjoy this beautiful country that we live in. Fair enough. And what do you think, last question, Will, what do you think your relationship with cooking and food is going to be like from this point on? So you worked 17 years and you're how old now, I ask? Rudely? Uh, 34. 34. Wow, so you've had really a full career. And from my perspective, you're very young. Absolutely ample time to have a full second career. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, back to that question. What, how, what is your relationship with food and go- cooking going to be from this point on? Uh, I think, uh, for the most part, my, my relationship with food is going to, instead of cooking it, going out and enjoying it. I love going out for for dinner and, and and having a glass of wine with with a beautifully prepared you know anything really um, preferably a giant ribeye over charcoal with some bone marrow butter or something um, but just depending on what it is you know I really really love food so I kind of chose to go and eat rather than to go and cook and um, I don't regret it. There's things that I'm going to miss about the industry. Seeing the guest's face light up when you create a special and, and they try it and they just they go bonkers for it. That's one of the best feelings in the world is you know, being able to nourish and feed someone and have them respond in such a positive and amazing way. That's probably one of the most important things I'm going to miss for sure. What a pleasure to catch up with Will. I'm lucky to have learned from many chefs, and I really value the time I had working with Will at Burdock & Co. He taught me a lot about speed and focus and standards during the rush of dinner service, and his change of career is a real loss to the industry. But I'm glad to see how passionate Will is about his new work as a mechanic, and I know he's going to keep putting up great food at home and enjoying it when he goes out to restaurants, where he'll be happy to pay the tab because Will knows exactly what goes into creating a great dining experience. My next guest is another friend and another former colleague from Burdock, Greg Sugiyama. Greg is a talented cook and a great person to talk to. He's the guy at Burdock who'd regularly talk about literature, philosophy, economics, while we were immersed in prep work. And on those mornings I showed up to the restaurant really early, there I'd find Greg working away with metal blasting through the stereo. Like many of us in the industry, Greg has felt a frustration with our sense as cooks that a lot of people don't understand or don't really understand just how thin restaurant margins are, just how much restaurants are paying for outstanding ingredients. Um, So trying to convince someone that, you know, this three-year-old prosciutto and organic white asparagus is going to cost them $20, that's, that's a difficult pill for a lot of people to swallow. And it's frustrating as a cook because you know you want to give them something that's a beautiful expression of land and 
producer. And Greg knows the frustration of developing a sophisticated palette while working in a job that doesn't pay you enough to indulge it. It's tough. It's real tough. Um, ate a lot of tater tots and drank cheap beer when I was cooking, that's for sure. Even though he too has stepped away from full-time professional culinary work, Greg continues to express himself through incredible naturally fermented bread. He is beyond an enthusiast here, and he's an inspiration to those of us who are more casual bakers. Okay, here's my talk with Greg. All right, here we are on a beautiful Thursday afternoon in East Vancouver. I'm at Bows and Arrows at the corner of Fraser and 25th with a good friend and former colleague, Greg Sugiyama. And Greg and I work together at Burdock & Co., where so many of the guests on Chef Demoni have come from. Uh, but we have both now left that, and that's what I want to talk to Greg about today, is a transition out of the culinary industry. So, first of all, Greg, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for meeting up. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure, Graham. So, maybe you can start us off with just an overview on uh, your your history in the culinary field. Take, take us from early, early days, what got you into it, and, and your early progression in the industry. Yeah, so... I grew up in a I grew up in a family. I, I mean, a relatively large family, four kids, two parents, single income home. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot to go around, but it was a it was a good way to live. We had a lot of food together. We cooked all of our meals at home. That was always a big thing. Uh, and my dad was the main the main cooker there. So one way to wrestle up four kids who are all infants or young kids is to have them in the kitchen and get them involved. Uh, so from a very young age, we were peeling potatoes and, and cooking. And then I was around 13, 14, and I needed a job. I wanted to get a, I wanted to get a cell phone, I think. So I, I ended up applying <laughs> everywhere I could. And you know, you're a kid, you're 14, your resume probably has like, what video games you like to play on it. And, <laughs> and that time you cut the grass last yeah, weekend. Yeah, exactly, and your volunteer <laughs> experience. Not grasping the uh, concept of relative interest. But um, I ended up getting a job at a Boston Pizza, and I was washing dishes, and I didn't care. It was my first job. It was eight dollars an hour and to me that was huge that was enough money to do whatever I needed to do um, and very quickly I ended up just cooking online and it was you know it wasn't cooking real food by any stretch of the term but uh, it really got me used to the idea of the intensity that comes with cooking on a busy line you're still producing a lot of food in a very short period of time and uh, from that point on I never left restaurants uh, regardless of what I was doing I worked through high school I went to university a degree in economics and I uh, I was still working front of house uh, during that entire stint. That was just the best way to pay for school. Uh, but nearing, nearing the end of my uh, university days, I really became disinterested with academic life. I did a lot of traveling in between, so what was a four-year undergraduate stretched to the span of like six years. Um, and it was the traveling, I think, that really brought my heart back into, back into food as an expression. I always felt good. I don't know, it reminded me of being at home. I, I have a great relationship with my parents and my family, so we always still congregate on Sundays and have family dinner, and it's always this big elaborate dinner that is put on, and it's it's the best thing in the world to me, or it's my favorite part of the week. You know, it's it's funny, I was interviewing um, for the, well, I guess second to last episode, a fellow new friend of mine, Chad McCarthy, and who's a Cicerone and a lawyer, and we got talking about, you know, backyard barbecues and people showing up with homebrew, and and uh, sharing smoked meats and that kind of thing. And I said, isn't it interesting that these passion projects, whatever they happen to be, they quickly become about the human element, right? And so it's whatever your quirk or interest happens to be, if it's food, if it's wine, if it's music, whatever, 
I think that's wonderful, but it quickly becomes about driving people together, I think. Absolutely, uh, 100%. That was, I think that was the biggest thing about food for me. I was, I had zero experience, like zero real experience in cooking uh, professionally or in a restaurant that cooked real food. Uh, the concept of mise en place was foreign, like everything about the prep schedule to the life to how it works um, was foreign, but I really wanted to make a go of it because I, above everything else, loved that exact feeling. You'd, you'd have people together or at your house or wherever you were and you'd share food and it always became memorable, not necessarily because of the meal you ate, but because of what it facilitated in that, in that gathering of people, that congregation and fellowship. It's great. It's, it's a wonderful feeling. That is something, retrospectively, now, out, out of the restaurant industry, that is definitely something that I I miss, but I also appreciate more about when I have dinner parties, is that immediate connection with someone. You are, right. as, a, as a cook on a line, and especially a line like Burdock, where it's open, you, you have a direct impact on someone's mood and how they feel, and you can watch it happen, and it's... <laughs> In real time. A lot of the time this is good, sometimes it's bad, but it's always, it's always emotional. I mean, anybody that cares about what they do puts their heart into it, and this, that was definitely something that I put my heart into. At this point, I asked Greg to talk more about his early professional experience, how he got into working in restaurants with more complicated dishes. Again, I found myself in this period where I was without a job, but I knew I wanted to cook. And I just, I was living in Richmond at the time, uh, and so I went into Vancouver with a handful of resumes and just decided that I could sell myself much better than a resume would, so I just went in and found as many chefs as I could get a hold of and talked to them a bit about myself and told them what I was looking to do and I was looking to learn. And I really needed someone that was willing to A, take a chance on someone with relatively little experience. And I found that in a, a woman uh, named Jessica Howery. She was the chef at Siena, which was Star Anise, which is now Fiore, where a friend of mine is working as the chef, Alex Vladimir. She's great. So that was that was my first real kitchen job, and it was it was amazing. I, I immediately fell in love with it. The energy that comes with a really busy line. It was an Italian restaurant, so I was making everything from scratch, pastas from scratch. We were curing meats. We were getting fresh produce from local farms. It was everything that I had kind of fantasized about when I thought about what real food was. Um, and that uh, that feeling didn't really fade. That feeling didn't fade at Santa. That was where I really cut my teeth into learning how working in a professional kitchen worked. What was the intensity like there? Was it how, like how, how were the hours and the level of activity through the day? So the hours were pretty standard cook hours, 10 to 12 hours a day, which at first I was young, I was probably 22 I think when I started. It wasn't something that I, I minded. I felt, I felt this weird sense of pride through struggle. Uh, I think a lot of cooks are sold the idea of professional chef life on, under, that, under that premise where you're, you're worthy or you're, uh, you're somehow more, you become vindicated in allowing yourself to accept that you've done a good job because you've, you know, gone through the ringer, worked 12 hours on a line and, you know, lost 50 pounds from sweat and heat exhaustion. <laughs> uh, but it, I, I loved it. And at the time I hadn't, I was young and I loved everything about it. My chef was a very accommodating woman. She was very fostering and nurturing as well. She she wasn't a bully chef. She was definitely much more of a, a mother figure in the kitchen, but she knew her stuff too, and I learned a lot from her. How long were you there? I was there for two and a half, three years almost. Okay. Almost just shy of three years. The, one of the sous chefs had left, so I spent a year there as sous chef. And I, again, I learned about restaurant operations and how to you know, plan menus, how to cost, how to 
right. manage ordering. And and maybe I can get you to comment on that, because this is a topic that I canvassed with Will uh, Beer, a former colleague of, of both of ours, mm-hmm. is the costing and restaurant economics. And um, I never had a great deal of interaction with it personally, but I learned a little bit about it. And I think there's a frustration on the restaurant side. And, and maybe... I, this is what I feel. There's a, there can be a frustration with a lack of knowledge in the wider community about just how expensive restaurants are to operate, just how thin margins are, and just how difficult it is to source and offer, you know, really wonderful local organic ingredients. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah man, any, any thoughts on that whole... Oh, it's, it's fucked. <laughs> I mean, sorry, can I, can I say that? You can. Okay, cool. You can. Yeah, it's yeah. fucked. It's yeah. horrible. Um, I mean, that... that, that it's kind of a preface, I guess, to one of my frustrations with the industry and why I left eventually. But um, with regards to costing and public awareness, that is, I think, a, that's a huge problem. Like, for example, asparagus, or organic asparagus. Everybody loves asparagus, but also corporate restaurants have kind of given us this idea that it's available all year round, which, you know, if you know anything about seasonal vegetables, it's, it's not. It's not available in December in Vancouver. That's <laughs> not a time when asparagus grows. But also, if you want if you want beautiful organic produce, it costs money. Those farmers aren't given subsidies by the government to farm organically. They have to pay more money to put out less produce because they're not using pesticides. They have lower crop yields, so it all translates into a higher price. Everything tastes better, but it's a higher price. Um, trying to explain that to a guest, when by and large, I think customers and consumers want to go to a restaurant and have value on their plate. I think there's there's still a leftover or a held over preconception from. You know, the 80s fine dining scene where you go in and the cost for an individual at a nice restaurant balances somewhere around $25 and that's an entree that includes a protein, a starch and a vegetable and that's that's still held by a lot of people um, so trying to convince someone that you know this three-year-old prosciutto and organic white asparagus is going to cost them $20 that's that's a difficult pill for a lot of people to swallow and it's frustrating as a cook because you know you want to give them something that's a beautiful expression of land and producer but I don't know unless someone's adventurous and they they kind of know it's very difficult I feel that's the goal of any good restaurant is you're you're trying to express something Um, there's a lot of emotion behind that expression and there's a lot of hard work behind that expression but also it boils down to food you are feeding someone Um, consumers need to be adventurous they need to be willing to try something that they don't know about or that they don't know if they necessarily like I don't know, that's one of my pet peeves, picky eaters. I, I don't know why, I don't really have a good justification, but nothing gets me like physically angry more <laughs> than when I encounter someone who's just so, like, so stuck on their position on what they will and will not eat. It's, oh, it's tough. So tell us a little bit more about your time at Burdock. How long were you there? I was at Burdock for actually almost three years as well. Yeah. I, I accomplished a lot at Burdock. Burdock was, part of the natural progression, I guess, in my career after after leaving Siena. Burdock was always a place that I found interesting. Uh, I, I learned and tried a little bit of naturalist wine before Burdock, um, but I was definitely very interested in wine. I'm a, I'm a flavorphile. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what it is. Um, if I enjoy something, I kind of start to obsess over it, like bread. Like uh, bread. Like bread, <laughs> as we've seen. Food was much like that for me, uh, and wine was too. Burdock seemed like a really nice combination. Andrea, I've been following Andrea for a little bit, and what she was doing was incredibly interesting. There seemed to still be a lot of heart in what she was doing, which there is. Andrea puts her heart and soul into her food. But what I liked the most about it, 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 
Burdock didn't seem like the kind of place that would compromise on its concepts. And it, in my time there, it never did. It was difficult, definitely, especially when we, you know, you're down a couple cooks, but your menus are becoming increasingly, increasingly more laborious and difficult. But I couldn't, I couldn't fault Andrea for that because it's, I don't know, she's just staying true to her concept. And again, like I said, that is very important for a restaurant. And again, the same, that same feeling. It was very romantic stepping onto that line because everything was new. Again, there were the, the attention to detail was higher. The level of precision was higher. The ingredients, the cooking techniques were more elaborate. It was just, it was everything I was looking for. Little did I know that that was going to slowly push me out of cooking for good. Not not Andrea, not Burdock, just that was going to be the last place where I really, really uh, felt the same about professional cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, and over my time at Burdock, I, I did everything there. I was there for a while. I watched people come and go. I learned an incredible amount with regards to like fermented foods. I was always, already fairly inter- interested in the world of fermented foods, but you know, Andrea loves her pickles. Right. Loves right, her right. pickles, loves her ferments. Um, yeah, kimchi. Oh my god. <laughs> that rhubarb kimchi, that blew my mind. I don't know. I still, it's probably still one of the favorite things I've taken away from that place is the fact that she decided to put rhubarb and kimchi together. Simple idea. It's amazing. It's so good. Andrea, she's she has one of the most unique flavor palettes I have seen out of a chef in Vancouver. And that's hard to do because there's a fair amount of uh, homogeneity, I guess, in the Vancouver cooking scene. It's not a shot at anybody in particular. It's just it's the way it is. It's hard to stand out when you have an incredible amount of restaurants. I actually heard a statistic the other day that Vancouver, per capita, apparently, yeah. don't quote me on this, has more restaurants than New York City does. Wow. So there, there's a lot. There's a lot to eat. So it's hard to stand out. But uh, she does that. She does that in spades. And it's, again, yeah, it's I still very, yeah, very fond memories of working for Andrea. Well, what were some of the things that changed your thinking about the industry generally? And um, either within the specifics of working, a, working the line or uh, bigger picture concepts on, you know, just living in an expensive city as a cook. What, what were the factors that started to drive you away from the industry? So I'm going to touch on that first. Let's yeah. say the paycheck. The paycheck, Burdock, by comparison, paid well. I don't know. Like, I have a, I have a partner and I live with someone in a one-bedroom, so rent is semi-affordable, but... I don't know to anybody else. I don't. I don't know how you do that. Like, there's no way a, a line cook could live in a one bedroom on their own. And I mean, coming home, the last thing I wanted to do after working online with people all day was be social and speak. I wanted to stare blankly at a wall and drink a bunch of beer and go to sleep or decompress somehow. So that's out of the way. That's the obvious. Vancouver's expensive. Everybody knows it. It's terrible. What can you do? Then the delegation of responsibility. Uh, again. No fault on Burdock for this, but for some of these reasons, cooks leave. They, they, they leave and they just either don't work in the city anymore because they can't afford to live in the city, so they're commuting and adding a couple extra hours onto an already incredibly long day just to commute to a job that's going to underpay you isn't very appealing. So I think a lot of people started working locally to where they were or leaving the industry entirely. Uh, so I found myself very quickly in a position where I was the most senior senior staff member. and that. I hadn't been there for very long at that point. But then that also put a fair amount of trust, I think, on my shoulders from Andrea's perspective, at least. She, she knew I understood what her standards were or what she was expecting. And so when she can just explain something to me in her way and have me understand it, I think that's a valuable thing for her. 
uh, unfortunately that also leads to more work on my end and sure. it's just the way it is my responsibility is increasing and my glass ceiling is shrinking what, what is your prospect as a line cook after two years you become what the sous chef okay the pay doesn't really increase and then after that point especially in my case where it's a chef owner I'm not going to become the head chef of a restaurant where the chef is the owner is the owner sure um, there's also limited real estate in Vancouver and there's cooks that are much more talented than I am and they, they don't have their own restaurants so it that was something I was processing is where do I where do I go yeah where does this lead like how do I keep advancing where Burdock was a natural step up from where I was the next step forward was like I had ideas and I I had passion to cook and I have at least in my estimation a fairly established flavor profile that's unique to me I would say it's also expressive as myself as a person um, so where, where do I go from there I I tried I actually in the summer before I left Burdock I, I ran a I guess relatively successful pop-up with a friend of mine Alex who's at Fiore and uh, Sean Ironworth he's a lovely chap he's a big naturalist wine dude and that, I, I loved that so much and it was heartbreaking at the same time because I loved having that creative control and just being able to serve food in an expression of myself. It was, it was a casual thing and it, it went over really well and I, everything about it I loved. Uh, when I say it was heartbreaking, I mean it was heartbreaking because it was an unrealistic scenario. I, wasn't, I didn't have a kitchen. I was, wasn't paying for overhead. I, was, I think we were paying 15% of our gross profits to uh, the owner of the place we were doing the pop-up out of which is nothing and that was that was profitable but the only way I could find I would I was able to advance and make profit was uh, was by running an illegal restaurant essentially and that that again looking down the future or looking down the road towards the future that is uh, not a prospect that I saw myself maintaining for a long period of time now that brings me back to that interesting point you made about the profit margins in restaurants uh, that is a very depressing statistic restaurants that are successful or at least non-corporate chain restaurants that are successful and they run a, a good food margin, so that's under 30% food costing, and their liquor costs are on control, their labor costs are in control. After everything else, including rent, utilities, expenses, what have it, they're drawing in like 5% profit, and that's a terrible, that's a terrible, terrible operating margin. Return. Yeah, it doesn't take much to go wrong to totally collapse that margin right? no you have one day of low sales or your labor is too high and your month you're not making profit like that's hard I don't I don't I don't know how to remedy that I it's very difficult to reconcile that reality with my future plans to be a chef and make it in the restaurant world it was after that summer that I really knew I had to get out I had a degree definitely did not want to go put on a suit and work in a firm doing fancy economic things Whatever that might be. <laughs> Whatever that means. See, be. this is how yeah. terrible of an economist I am. Uh, economist, pardon me. So I made a plan. I uh, signed up for a software development bootcamp, worked really hard, and now I am a full stack software developer. I'm working half as much as I was at Burdock, and I'm making over twice what I was. So, and that, that's that is the entry level point for me. Right. So I have right. a, I have a future finally, and a work life balance, and it's yeah. it's startling and it's different, but it's. Uh, it's satisfying and it's very difficult for me to look back and think I made a mistake because I, I don't feel like I have. No, no. Well, when you compare those two realities, right? I don't think you have made a mistake. It's just, I guess the one thing that comes to mind for me is that it's sad that those are the two realities. Yeah. Right? That we, as a society, 
aren't devoting more, aren't willing to devote, devote more resources to nourishing ourselves. <laughs> it's depressing in its way. Um, it's inspiring in that sort of through your early years from 14 at Boston Pizza and on up through your 20s in various restaurants and getting higher and higher and more and more interesting food and more and more responsibility. It's almost an art project that you can sustain for a while, right? When you don't have that many other responsibilities. As sad as I am to see you out of the industry, I think that's the right choice. And I mean, back to what you said earlier with pop-ups, I still have friends in the industry and I still have friends who own spaces. Uh, I've talked to several of them about the possibility of doing pop-ups, but it would be for fun. It, sure. would be, it would be a passion project. I have more time and energy to cook at home now than I ever did. Yeah. Um, I'm also able to buy things that I want to eat. You know, I'm not right. eating on a budget. I mean, relative, I'm able to afford the things that my palate has been trained to crave which right. is unfortunate because a lot of cooks I feel are in that dilemma where you are exposed to the best drink and food and you cannot afford it and it's dangled in front of you like a carrot in front of a horse <laughs> daily <laughs> daily it's tough it's real tough um, ate a lot of tater tots and drank cheap beer when I was cooking that's for sure even though Greg has left the industry, he's still very much connected to food. I asked him about that, and about a specific project he goes by the handle at Stretch and Fold on Instagram, baking naturally leavened bread. So Instagram is an amazing platform for self-promotion uh, because it's free. All you have to do is put in a little work and make some connections and spread your name around. Uh, I am, I'm, as a person, not ethically, just as a person, completely withdrawn from social media it's not something that interests me uh, but stretch and fold was a little passion project of mine uh, when I was still cooking where I thought maybe this was how I would get my name out there to a point where I could uh, establish myself and be self-sustaining um, I became incredibly obsessed with naturally leavened bread through no I don't I don't even remember why to be honest with you I, I actually cannot recall how I got into it all I know is now I have like a six-year-old starter and a grain mill and a CSA with a couple different farms and several books on the topic. Uh, it was just a, something that I could really obsess over that had a startling level of complexity behind it, but also an incredibly simplistic, loving approach. There are people that never weigh their flour. There are people that don't weigh their water. They don't temp their breads. They don't really monitor their proofing temperatures and they make the most beautiful bread in the world and it's an expression of them as a person uh, and then there's people more like me who lean towards the empirical approach where I enjoy understanding uh, the quantitative measures that make bread good I'm sure there's a better way to word that no I think that's right so you're, you're the guy who's jotting down the temperatures and the fermentation times I have the, several yeah active yeah. bread journals yeah. <laughs> uh, at home Coming to the end here, one more question that I do want to get your thoughts on. What would you say to a young person, pick, you know, 14 when you started, 16, 18, who's interested in, in cooking professionally? What advice would you give them? To stay, to go, go do to it. school? Definitely do, do it. it. Do it. Don't, awesome. go to, don't go to school. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, if you're motivated and you find people that are willing to take you on, you will learn more on a line working for a good chef than you will in school. Uh, and I can say that with confidence because I have hired people out of school and you need to learn an entire new skill set once you get into the restaurant and it doesn't matter if you went to school every restaurant differs in how they operate in how they uh, 
how they produce. Uh, uh, there's a million different ways to cook everything, and every restaurant does it differently. So saying that there is a standard that you can learn in school is absurd. Um, even though I am out, I feel that if I stuck it out till I was maybe you know, 40, 45, and I worked as hard as I was, and I explored and pushed myself, I could find some form of relative success in that industry. But for me, and what I needed from it, that wasn't realistic. I needed a work-life balance, and I needed time to start a family, and that's what I plan on doing. And I couldn't do it under uh, under the pressures of working in restaurants. But you know, if you're 14 or if you're 16 or if you're you know 28 or if you're a lawyer in your 30s and you're looking to learn how to cook, I it is I learned so much about myself, my capabilities, um, about food, about taste, about flavor, about produce around me environmental sustainability like all of these all of these things came together and were pushed out in this loving plate that you would serve to a customer uh, I learned about friendship I, I have some real close friends that I still maintain whom I have worked with that camaraderie that you get under fire under pressure and under extremely stressful situations is something that cuts past all of the superficial bullshit that usually comes about with new relationships and you just you know you see each other at your worst and you learn, you learn what people are really made of. Plus, I've been exposed to some of the best food that you'll ever get to eat. Absolutely. Uh, that is a huge positive. So if you're looking to get into cooking, you're going to learn a lot, and you're going to eat a lot of good stuff, and you're going to meet some really cool people. I think, I think talent and passion really associates well in that subculture where you're below the poverty line and you're struggling because cooking is a form of art. I, I believe that. You meet a lot of other starving artists whether they be musicians, painters, poets, people who make ceramics. Uh, sure. And it's a completely rich scene, right? Yeah. So why, why not live in it for at least a few years? A lot. I, one of the reasons why I love living in the neighborhood where I do is because I worked in the neighborhood and I got to meet and get to know a lot of people doing interesting things around. And now, being out of the industry, I still get to go and see them and watch what they're right. doing and be a part of it. So I'm not remiss, really, to be out. I just make sure that I put a lot of effort into staying active in that kind of scene. And that's where Greg and I ended our talk. It felt a bit wistful, but hell, it felt grateful and optimistic too. There's a lot to worry about in the culinary industry, and a whole lot that could be improved. I think that all of us, cooks, chefs, servers, restaurant goers, can play a part in making those improvements. If you love food, if you think it's worthwhile, please support those who pour everything they have into it. Try new things, open yourself to culinary challenges, and I say don't waste your energy trying to calculate how much you could have made this for at home. With this many friends leaving the industry, I'm going to keep some distance from wistful, and I'm going to focus on grateful and optimistic. There's a lot to be happy for. The culinary industry gives so much to those who invest in it, even if that investment isn't for a lifetime. For most of us, it's not a lifetime commitment. It can't be. But restaurant work gives us great memories, some handy skills, and many of our best friends. So that's the note to end episode number six. Remember to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, and please connect with me with any questions you have. You can DM me on those social spaces or email me at graham at chefdemony.com. I'm Graham McLennan, and I thank you for joining me, and I'll see you here next time on Chef Demony. <laughs>